0: Well, welcome to part two of Unnecessary Roughness. We started last week with our Food Truck Rally launching this message series. And before we jump all the way into your message notes, which you can find when you came in, they're on the back of this document right here. They go there. You can follow along. Uh, before we jump into all that, I just want to say thank you for all your effort last week to make the Food Truck Rally a success. We had an incredible number of adult guests with us in the room and students in middle school as well and uh, and children. And we had a number of people commit their lives to Christ for the first time and re- remake commitments. And several of our guests said they're going to be with us. And I just want to say thank you to the people who call the church home for creating a welcoming uh, place. It's, it's a phenomenal place to do ministry in as a pastor. It's a great community to be a part of, just as a brother in Christ, so just thank you for that. I love your heart of welcome for people, and I love the fellowship that I got to see last week. And this week, I was reminded of how important that is, because our church grew by at least two people this week that I'm aware of. Yesterday, midday afternoon, Josh, um, who is our kids' pastor, and Megan had their babies a little bit early twins. yeah you can give it up for there. Evelette and Micah. Evelette and Micah came. they were just over three pounds. they're doing incredibly well. they were actually breathing on their own, just getting some oxygen assist. no need for mechanical assistance. they're just some oxygen. they're doing well, mama and uh, dad are doing fine. we're going to pray for Josh. His hands are going to be full. He had a handful of kids here that he was caring for in our, in our kids' ministry, but now he has two. And I bet you that the two are going to kick his tail more than uh, all the ministry here. That's my opinion. Um, but uh, I, I just, I'm so excited for this family to have their kids in this church because I can't think of a better place to raise a family in. So thank you guys uh, for making this such a wonderful place. Well, you got to see in the uh, video clip that you watched a little bit about a fight, but I was very interested in how the announcer described what was going on. He said that it's incredibly selfish. It's terrible, actually. It's terrible. It's very, very selfish to put your own self-interest ahead of the team. It's a terrible thing to do. And uh, that's actually kind of what I want to talk to you about today As we talk about unnecessary roughness. This is a a series that we're looking at some football dynamics since we're launching into the 100th year of the NFL and football season's uh, beginning in full swing here. And uh, we're not just though looking at football, we're looking at relationship dynamics. And the truth is, is that both on the football field and in real life, sometimes life can happen in such a way That it hardens our hearts. It hardens our hearts. And a hard heart is a horrible place. It's a terrible place to try to do life from. The Bible tells us about the condition of our heart. It says, watch the nature of your heart because the heart is the wellspring of life. Out of your heart comes all manner of things. Jesus said, out of the abundance of what's going on in here, your mouth is going to speak. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so watching our hearts is essential. And today, I want to talk to you about two primary things. I want to talk to you about watching the heart for a minute. And then I want to give you a strategy. If you're like me and you're a person who wants to watch his heart... You're a person who wants to do well. You're a person who doesn't want to exercise unnecessary roughness on the people around me. I don't want them to exercise unnecessary roughness on me. And so I want to watch my heart, but I also need a handful of strategies for how to mechanically do it. What do I do when my heart isn't always right to make sure that I'm not unnecessarily rough around people that I care about? I mean, the last thing I want to do is win some accolades, get some good toys, have a certain amount in my bank account, and lose the people closest to me. And that's exactly what's at stake when roughness goes unchecked, when relationships grind through the grit of life. What we're going to talk about today is like changing the oil in your motor car. It's, it's like changing the oil. It's, it's putting some fresh lubricant in there so that the machine can operate at high speed, under pressure, and not break down. Now, you might have a notion of Christianity that says something like this, that if I come to Jesus, then everything's gonna be perfect and fine. But the truth is, that's not true. Now, ultimately, Everything will be perfect and fine. Ultimately, when we get to heaven and we're at the end of this life and we begin eternity, every wrong is going to be made right. Every bad is going to be set correct. The Bible says it's going to be a place of perfect joy and happiness such that there won't be any more sad tears in our eyes. So ultimately, everything's going to be fine. But between here and there, there's going to be some challenges. There just is. That's why when Jesus said to disciples like you and me, come follow me, he did not call you to total perfection in this life. When he said, come follow me, he wasn't inviting you to start a path towards your total perfection. That is not what he was trying to do. That's good news for me today because I'm not anywhere near totally perfect. Jill thinks I am. You guys don't tell her any different, okay? We have this little thing worked out. I'm not totally perfect. But when Jesus called me to be a disciple, he didn't call me to perfection. He called me instead to total devotion. Not total perfection, but total devotion. And total devotion is a beautiful thing because when I'm in movement with Jesus, when I'm following him and I'm called to total devotion, it gives me some room to grow and develop and to deal with the hard things of life. Give me some room to deal with that, to process it, to to try some things and fail, to try some things and maybe not all the way fail, but not fully succeed either. It gives me some room. Total devotion versus total perfection is so much a better walk with Jesus. And maybe you thought Christianity was all about cleaning up your life, was all about getting it all right. And there's some benefit to cleaning up your life if you need that. But that's not what Jesus called you to. He called you to following him with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your strength, to be devoted to the path that he has you on, not to your perfection or your attainment. And the reason why I'm spending a little bit of time here is just because here's what I need you to understand. If we're going to deal with unnecessary roughness in life, the fact that Jesus called you to total devotion and not perfection is good news for you, but it's also good news for everybody you're doing life with. Because no one, no one you're going to do life with is ever going to be able to live perfectly. On occasion, they're going to be rough with you. The brokenness in their life or the priorities in their life or the strategies in their life or the timing of their engagement with you is going to rub you wrong. And that doesn't mean that they have to be out with Jesus. You can afford to be gracious with them because what he called them to is a life of devotion, not perfection. So what we're left with here, here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is you're left with dealing with people who aren't going to be perfect with you. You're left with the struggles and the hurts and the disappointments that come from living life in a community, in a family, at a job, in your school, with your friends. You're left with some hurt and disappointment and challenges that come because two or more imperfect people are sharing the same space. But the good news is, the good news is, even though you're going to have some of that, when you follow Jesus with your life, even if you haven't attained perfection and the people around you haven't attained perfection, you have room to grow and develop. And there's even a space to manage the hurt and the disappointments that come to you. One of my favorite writers in the Bible is, a, is, a, is an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He's considered a major prophet. In the Old Testament, and major prophets and minor prophets in the Bible are differentiated this way. Major prophets have entire books that are long named after them. They're major works of literature. Minor prophets have three, four, five chapters at best. Jeremiah has an entire book that has his name. It's well over 40 chapters. And then he has a second book called Lamentations, which was written by him. It's kind of part two of his life. So lots and lots of chapters. We know a lot about Jeremiah and his situation. And in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, which is the second part of his life, here's how he writes with incredible, brutal honesty. Again, if you've been around here, you know I say this all the time. But one of the marks that you can trust the scripture is, is that the heroes of the Bible speak with brutal honesty about life. They're not cleaning it up. They're not anesthetizing the content to make them sound spiritual. This is the heart of Jeremiah right now in Jeremiah chapter 3. Here's what he says. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. This is what happens when imperfect people live together. Now, in Jeremiah's time, there was some stuff going on politically, and he was called to speak against the authority that was in power. He was was called to speak truth to power, and so he did that, and it brought for him not incredible blessings. He got the blessing of obedience, but he also found himself in a pit full of muddy clay up to his neck. He was not a happy camper. He's trying to do the right thing in a very broken situation, and it rains down a certain amount of pain on him. That's where he was. This is a hero of the Bible. And his emotion is not, I'm so glad I'm here. It's not what he's feeling. He actually says, I remember my downcast days and the bitterness that got in my heart and the gall that I had about the whole situation. His nickname, I've shared this with you before. His nickname is the weeping prophet because his life doesn't get perfectly good just because he's obedient to God. He lives in a broken world. He has some brokenness in himself. There's broken systems all around him. And all that brokenness conspires together and he has regular moments of pain and disappointment. Life is rough to him. And I want you to look at what he says here because it begins to give us a little bit of hope. He says, my soul is downcast within me And then he says this important word, yet. So even while this is going on, yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope. Hope is the inheritance of every person who answers Jesus' call to follow him. It's a hope that says, even though I'm not going to be totally perfect, I don't live in a totally perfect world, I don't share a house with totally perfect people, I can have hope. Because a life of total devotion to Jesus is always a life with hope. So while all this stuff's going on with Jeremiah, the bitterness, the gall, the painful regret, his soul is downcast, he's depressed, yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. And here's what he has open: Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. So this painful stuff, it doesn't define everything. It's not all that's going on. There's a reality in front of him that is difficult and dark, but it's not the total reality. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And then he says this great line. Songs have been written, inspired by this line. It has encouraged believers ever since Jeremiah wrote it. Great is your faithfulness. And I want to share with you today about the heart of your heavenly father, that if you'll follow Jesus, not as a totally perfect person, but as a developing person, as one committed to total devotion, you can have hope because the grace and the compassion of God does not fail. I fail. You fail. The people you do life with fail. The church of Jesus Christ, in many ways, fails. But God doesn't fail. He's faithful. His grace doesn't fail. His compassion doesn't fail. Because that is true, you can stay motivated, you can stay energized about your devotion to Jesus because it is the constant source of hope in your life. I want to remind you today as we start that in some ways the football metaphor is true about life. You're on the battlefield or a ball field and there is conflict. And sometimes that conflict boils over. And it can, like for Jeremiah, it can harden the heart. It can have a negative impact on you. In fact, blank number one in your message notes is your enemy wants to use hard things in life to harden your heart. That's the whole point. God wants to use the hard stuff in your life as a point of your development to remind you of his faithfulness, to show you that there's always a way out, to give you a hope and a future. But your enemy wants to use hard things in your life to do one thing. He's not really worried about your surface happiness. What he's worried about is your heart. And what has his attention is, is what can I do to harden your heart? That's what your enemy's goal is. So he wants to use the normal ebb and flow of life, just the normal cycles. And he wants to use the brokenness of other people. And he wants to use your own imperfection to conspire against you to harden your heart. Because when the enemy hardens your heart, everything gets darker. And he revels in darkness. God's desire is to fill your heart with his love with the compassion that does not fail, to renew it every morning so that the heart can live in a broken and fallen world and still stay soft and pliable and open to the things of God. So your enemy, blink number one, wants to use hard things in your life to harden your heart. And number two, too often, when our hearts are hard, we find ourselves fighting wrong enemies, driven by wrong motives, and using wrong tactics. And when all that happens, we get wrong results. The problem with the hard heart, the problem with the husband who has a hard heart, maybe the things that hardened his heart are the kinds of things that should upset him, are the kinds of things that aren't objectively fair, aren't the, are not the kind of things that would upset anybody those are the things that are happening, but when they conspire together successfully to create a hard heart, the problem with the husband who has a hard heart, it's hard for love to flourish in a home where one spouse or both have hard hearts. Very difficult. When the heart is hard, and if the heart is the wellspring of life, what comes out a lot is unnecessary roughness. That's what happens. And there are a lot of things that can harden the heart. We've been talking about the things that can happen to you. But there are things you can do as well that will harden you. Unrepentant sin, rejected conviction, and the life of a believer will harden the heart. The apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. He says that there's this thing that God does where he reveals himself to people. But we have this problem. We tend to reject what he reveals and when we do that long enough over time, you can read it in Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. When we do that long enough time, what happens is, is our heart, here's the word he uses, our heart actually becomes a reprobate heart. It has a hard time distinguishing between right and wrong anymore. That's the ultimate impact of a heart that's hardened. You don't even know up from down anymore. And what should require gentleness and loving words and listening and kindness or truth spoken in love. Instead of what you get is roughness and sharpness and edges. And come on, you're like me. You've been around couples. We'll just talk about marriage for a second. You've been around couples where this is true, haven't you? who were a few years into their marriage after they stood before God and their friends and their family and each other and said, I promise to love and cherish and obey and honor and all, all that good stuff. I promise. And, and they, they meant every word they said because it's so easy to make a promise, isn't it? And just a few years after those promises that they meant with 100% sincerity, something has twisted in here. And now the simplest thing, and there's an edge And there's roughness, there's cursing perhaps, and it's ugly. And and what happens then is it doesn't just affect the marriage, does it? I mean, some of you, I want to bring up, some of you grew up in a home where what I'm talking about is exactly what you saw. Somebody's personal choices in an environment with other people that lived close to them while they made those personal choices left other people around them with hardened hearts and it's a bad situation. And the problem with hard hearts again is that when I have a bad heart I'll fight, sometimes even good fights, but I'll fight them the wrong way. I'll fight them at the wrong time, I'll fight them with the wrong intensity. I'll sometimes be driven by wrong motives and when that happens, it doesn't matter how noble my fight is. It doesn't matter if the point I'm making is right or wrong. I'm going to lose. And that's why Jesus says to us in the scriptures, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. And yet we all live in a world that is going to constantly battle the heart. And here is Jeremiah in total obedience to God. And he says, I remember the bitterness. I have the regrets. I have resentment. The gall that got in here. And if that were the end of the story, we'd all look at him and go, that's understandable. It makes sense. But it isn't the whole story. The rest of the story is, yet I recall. Your compassions are new every morning. I like that phrase, new every morning. Because I don't know about you, certainly not every season of my life, but there have been some seasons where I needed new compassion. Not once a week, not once a month. I needed it every day. And that's exactly the kind of compassion that is available to us through our Heavenly Father who calls us again, not to a perfect life, but to a life of devotion to Him. And I love the fact that we're talking about a God who has this kind of compassion because when you think about a person who has every right to feel wronged and offended by behaviors that are done around him, it's our Heavenly Father. And yet, his response to our imperfection is compassion and grace, and it's new every morning. There's a fresh start with him. So, our hard heart is damaging because it makes us sometimes fight the wrong enemy. That's what you saw a little bit of in the clip. There was a skirmish that went further than it should, went beyond the bounds. There was a fall, a foul, there was a flag on the field. And then the commentators. Comment, I, I, I only, when I watch sports, I only really watch to hear the commentators. They're so funny to me. But in this case, incredibly profound, how terrible it is, how selfish it is to be so self-oriented and forget the fact that there's a time and place and a way to do the conflict on the field, and the way you're acting over here isn't it. And when you act that way, you're selfish because you're gonna affect not just yourself, but your whole team, So when the Lord calls us to a soft heart, it's not to make us feel bad that our hearts get hardened on occasion. It's because the Lord loves us and he loves the people we're doing life with and what he wants more than anything like a loving father is he wants to give us strategies and understanding so that the light of Christ, the love of Christ can shine and not get blocked by our hard hearts. I like how the psalmist wrote in Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is as if the dew were falling on Mount Zion. Now that imagery is kind of pastoral for us. It doesn't necessarily translate to a suburban setting, but Zion is the place where uh, the activity with God was often centered. And when dew in the morning would fall, it was a beautiful setting, and everything was lush and green. So it's vibrant, it's alive, it's healthy. That's what it's like when people live together in unity. And then he says, for where the Lord bestows his blessings, even life evermore occurs. So here's what God wants. He wants life, not hard hearts for you. We fight wrong enemies. We forget who the real enemy is. So the writer in the New Testament tells us that we do not struggle against flesh and blood. So every time I have a fight with my wife, my fight ultimately isn't with her. I don't struggle against flesh and blood, the Bible tells us, as followers of Jesus. But we struggle against spiritual forces that we can't even see sometimes, that have a much grander picture of what they hope to have happen to us. And when I can remember in every conflict that shows up in my home, in my church, in my life, between friends, that what's really going on here is there's a spiritual reality. I know what I feel physically. I know what I see physically. I often don't think about the spiritual reality, but when I can remember that there's a spiritual reality... It gives me pause to think about what the bigger picture is and what stakes are really at play here. We don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. The real enemy is the enemy of your soul whose entire purpose in existence is to bring darkness to where God wants to bring light. Sometimes it's really difficult to know what the enemy is. Jill and I, early in our marriage, and many of you parents will relate to this, We had to realize that sometimes our kids, as kind as they are, will pit one of us against the other one. Dad, can I go and do such and such a thing? I'm not really comfortable with that. No, you may not. So then they would run over and ask mom, mom, can I do such and such a thing? And of course, she would say yes sometimes because it seemed reasonable to her. And then the kids would do it, and I'd find out about it, and I'd be frustrated. And if I wasn't careful for the first few times this happened, guess who I was frustrated at? My wife. But guess who the enemy was? My adorable kids. They can be so awesome and so terrible, can't they? You guys don't know what I'm talking about. That's just kids being kids, pushing against the authority where they want to push against the authority. That's That's just kids being kids. And I had to remind myself, Jill and I are in unity. This is an issue. We can can work on a system, but we're in unity on this. We want what's best for our kids. She's not the problem. I got some development to do with my kids and helping them understand how to respect authority and how not to pit one of us against the other one. All right? Now, this showed up, some of you will remember, or at least you studied a little bit about it in school, in the Vietnam conflict. Before it started, before other countries were involved, it was North Vietnam versus South Vietnam. And the problem was, as North Vietnamese people and South Vietnamese people looked exactly the same. And so when it was still just guerrilla warfare, only guerrilla warfare between the com- country before anybody else was really involved, you could have people from the enemy camp show up in the opposing camp and you couldn't look at them and tell any real difference. This created all kinds of challenges. And then people were related and stuff. And so the lines of which side you were on got really confusing. And that's easy to study about in the history books. But you realize that happens in your home? That happens at your work? That happens in your church? It's hard sometimes to see. And when your heart is hard, by your own challenges, it's 10 times harder to remember who the real enemy is. It's very hard. We end up fighting wrong enemies, sometimes with wrong motives. Sometimes I have to be honest and say my motives aren't always altruistic, aren't always for what God wants. Sometimes I can be a little selfish. And when I forget that, I'm reminded in James chapter 4, here's what the brother of Jesus had to say. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your own desires, or don't they come from your own desires that battle within you? You desire it, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. James says this is the reason a lot of people fight in churches. And I would suggest in families as well. You fight wrong enemies with wrong motives and sometimes with wrong tactics. Here's the truth about your marriage, about your friendships, about your church. The greatest relationships happen between two servants who are there to serve one another. That's the best place to have a relationship. Now, a lot of our relationships in life aren't defined that way. What happens is is we often are very interested in our rights, When I was helping our kids learn how to drive, I had to teach them about driving defensively because it didn't matter who had the right of way. I mean, you may have the right of way, exercise your right of way, and in not being defensive, while other people aren't exercising your right of way, you may get hurt. Reminded of the little ditty that says, here's lies, the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along but he's just as dead as if he was wrong, right? That's, that's what you try to teach your kids about defensive drugs. It doesn't matter if you have right away, Look both ways before you go. So healthy relationships fight for resolution. They fight for mutual wins. But when there's hard hearts, one or two or seven, and it's so easy to have one, it's really difficult to fight for a true shared win. So, number three, when I fight for good things in bad ways, I can be wrong even though I'm right. Now, let me just ask you, don't raise your hand. But am I the only one who's experienced this? Where I have been right, I mean, on a a significant level right, but I went about it wrong. And so instead of winning the real win, I lost. I've done this. I've seen it. I've had it done to me. People who are right and go about it the wrong way. So what we have to remember is that there is an enemy that doesn't have flesh and blood. It's not the person you're arguing with. And his goal is to get involved and to trick things up and to bring discord and disunity, hardened hearts ultimately. And then there's our Heavenly Father who speaks grace and mercy over imperfect people and shows us an example of what it is to deal with people who are imperfect. And as we follow him in full devotion, light can come in the middle of those dark situations. Now, unless you think I'm being overly simplistic here, I hope you don't, I want to tell you that my estimation is, this, the principle we're talking about right here is the number one reason why marriages either get better or get divorced. It isn't that you fight, it's how you fight. Every marriage I know that's good fights. But good marriages have learned how to fight for what's good and how to fight well. How to fight in a way that doesn't just harden the heart, but actually moves the ball forward. This is incredibly complex. And the longer it seems that you're married, the harder it gets. But if you can turn this corner... I'm telling you that in your marriage, in your friendships, in your life, if you'll turn this corner, you can very quickly begin to put some miles behind you and the hard-hearted dynamics that are typically tripping people up. You can put some real distance between you and that by turning this corner, by remembering that when I fight for good things, but I fight for them in the wrong way, I'll be wrong even when I'm right. Number four, you don't get unity by ignoring the issues that must be faced. The reason I'm making this point is is that it's not about not fighting at all. It's not about ignoring the hard things that happen in life and the, the, uh, the roughness that you experience. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about a unity that can be present in your relationships in spite of the fact that you live with imperfect people and you're imperfect yourself. There's a real unity that can come to you. A real unity that can come to your marriage, a unity that can come to your family, to your team, to your friendship. You don't get there by ignoring things. What you do instead is you deal with the things, but you deal with them in a way that honors people. That remembers the priority, that remembers the person I'm talking to is made in the image of God. I'm made in the image of God, so I'm not a doormat, but they're not a doormat. I am a person who deserves dignity and respect, and they deserve dignity and respect for no other reason than they are made in the image of God. God gave me a certain value and worth when I was a mistaker and a sinner. And and following my heavenly father in devotion to him, I can find mercy and grace available to show them dignity and worth in the middle of their mistakes and sins. This is how we model the love that ultimately brings unity to families and churches and friendships and life. This is what every good coach coaches for. On the team, it's not about the star. It's about the team. When the team wins, we all win, and you know the rest of this. And when we lose, it's the coach's fault, right? You know how that works, right? When we win, we all win. And if we don't all win, we don't win, So you don't get unity by ignoring the issues that must be faced. But number five, when you remember that unity is the goal, that we're in this together, the way I fight will change. So here's the thing, friends. There are going to be fights. You're going to have them in your marriage. You're going to have them with your kids. You're going to have them with your nine-year-old kid. At one point, like when they were eight years old, they were adorable and cuddly and still awesome. And by 9 or 10 at the latest, they're not anymore. That's the way it works. Now, if you're not there yet, okay, whatever. Um, some of you are grandparents. You've seen it. Now, you know what the difference between grandparent and parent, There's a lot of difference between grandparent and parenting. One is you can send the kids home, right, which is awesome. You get to be the good cop always if you want to be. But even grandparents can see it. But they've learned something now. They've learned the ability to step back and not have to win every engagement. They've learned how to redirect and to, you know, a good grandparent, they just want to be connected to the kid. And that goal of being connected, the unity with them, that changes the way they interact because they don't have the full responsibility of all the development stuff anymore. So it changes the way they act. I'm telling you, you can have a change of mentality with the people you're doing life with. In such a way that the normal ups and downs and challenges don't simply harden your heart. You can remember what's really at stake and who the real enemy is and what you're really fighting for in a way that can actually, conflict can actually bring you closer together. It's difficult, it's rare. Most of us haven't seen it modeled well, but it's possible. And I'm gonna remind you that your entire Christian relationship, with your heavenly father through the person of Jesus is only possible because you were a failure. That's true. God loves us and extends to us an opportunity to receive Christ that we can't even approach until we admit we're sinners. I have failed. I am not right. I cannot save myself. And when that's done, God says, all right, now we're on the same page. Let me save you. Oh, and by the way, all that other stuff, I loved you in the middle of all that. I had a plan for you. I had a purpose for you. Those things, as dark as they were, did not stop my plan for you. I'm still pressing for you. God has this ability to remember all that he wants, even when we're not on board with the program. And he calls us, honestly, to the same kind of mentality with those we do life with. So this is the heart that I want to challenge you to develop. And I want to give you a strategy that no matter where you are on the 1 to 10 scale of soft heart and hard heart, you know, 10, I'm totally soft and open and pliable, and I'm having the conversations I need to have in the right way at the right time with the right words. And a 1 is, you know, you look at me wrong, and I'm ready to jab. All right? You know people like that? You work with somebody like that? Right? You, know, you don't really know what's going on, but clearly something's going on. I want to give you a strategy, no matter where you are in that spectrum, no matter where you are, will always work to bring the real issue to the surface and to allow you to fight for what's healthy and right without hardening your heart. Now, I can present the information, but I can't make you change your mind about this. And somebody in the room, I'm certain, or somebody watching online, I'm certain, is going to have an exemption. They're going to be the one person that this doesn't apply to. And I just want to tell you if that's you, you're wrong this applies to everyone. It applies to me without a doubt. And it's so simple and beautiful. And you know how it is sometimes we're looking for complex answers to complex problems. And so we're given a simple one. Sometimes it doesn't feel significant. This may not feel significant to you, but it is powerful. When James, the brother of Jesus, was writing to churches in which there was conflict, sometimes between each other, sometimes between them and the world, sometimes just situational conflict that happened. Here's what he says we should do in James chapter one. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be, and here we go with strategy now. We're out of the clouds. We're right now feet on the ground. Everyone should be quick to listen. Now in the Greek, that word everyone is is a very complex term. So if you wanna take a note, I want you to write down what it means. The word everyone in Greek means... Everyone. Right? That's what it means. Everyone. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, notice anger is not the problem, it's man's anger fueled by some kind of speech listening dynamic and some kind of timing dynamic. When anger is fueled by a bad time, by the wrong use of words at the wrong time, then anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And the righteous life is very, simpler, uh, very similar to what Bill and Ted talked to us about you know, a couple decades ago, Bill and Ted's Excellent uh, Adventure. When they were talking about things being righteous, it was awesome, cool, hip, right, exactly the way it should be, the best version of itself. That's what we mean by the word righteous here. So when God gives us an opportunity to have a righteous life, it's the best possible life. So let's just unpack those three phrases. Blank number one under James chapter one there. Stop and listen carefully. As the hard things of life happen, as the grit is introduced into the oil... As things uh, ramp up, temperatures rise, number one, stop and listen carefully. Be quick to listen. Lead with listening. So Proverbs 18, verse 2, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. But the Bible says that if you're serious about following God, full devotion, then you will devote yourself to listening. This is repeated over and over again in Scripture. And we're to be great listeners because God himself is a great listener. I mean, when you think about it, listening may be the biggest part of God's job. It's pretty extraordinary, actually, and it runs throughout all of Scripture. God says, for example, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, when he's talking to his people, he says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. God says, I will hear. God himself listens to every prayer prayed. God hears every cry. God notices every tear. It was God who said to Moses that he was going to deliver his people from Egypt. For I am the Lord God who heard my people's cry when they were in distress. And I noticed their sorrow. He listens carefully. And we're called to model our Heavenly Father's love in this world. And when we do that well, we'll be good listeners. Listening is an art, not just a science. But there are some very practical, mechanical things you can do. One is a very simple thing you might have taught your children. I was taught it by my parents, that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should be listening twice as often as we speak. It's a mechanical device. Just don't talk as much. And listen, if things ramp up, Ask questions instead of make statements and then shut the mouth and listen and watch the temperature drop. Go to work tomorrow if there's a conflict. Shut the mouth, ask a few questions, shut the mouth, watch, and then listen and watch the temperature drop. Now You don't have to be a Christian. You can benefit from that. But as a follower of Jesus, we don't do it because it works. We do it because it represents how our Heavenly Father engages us. So by the way, very rarely does listening lead to profound regret. Opening the ears very rarely will make you find yourself thinking, why did I pay careful attention to the other person? Why in a rash moment was I so empathetic and patient? And why was I discerning what was going on in that person's heart? Why was I concerned with what they were thinking? And what You're not going to do that if you listen. But if you speak too quick, too much and too loud, too pointedly, well, most of your regret in mind is somehow connected to that behavior right there. So very simply, everyone should stop and listen carefully. You want to keep your heart from getting hard? Honestly. Honestly. If your marriage is in marked, to some degree by hardness that you've had between each other or the world has inflicted on one of you and you're bringing that home because that's what happens, the quickest way to begin to soften the heart, and it requires restraint, is to stop and listen. I've had enough counseling training in my master's work to be dangerous, and I know this, that when there's a lot of yelling in the home, typically somebody doesn't feel heard. So how do you make somebody feel heard? You listen, even when they're wrong. So listening does not lead to regret. It doesn't. It never has. I'm not suggesting that you only listen. I'm suggesting that you stop and listen carefully. This is a fundamental wisdom that we can talk about today in relationships. You can teach it to your children. You can model it. It's very, very difficult. And if you struggle with this too much, I want to suggest at the root, it isn't an ignorance problem. You did not know this. You probably have a hard heart. And I don't say that in judgment. I say that with pain. If you can't stop talking when you should be listening, Your heart is probably hard and filled with all matter of grit and bile and bitterness and resentment. And even more so, stop and listen. You can take this with you today. If you get nothing else, stop and listen carefully. Let me give you one phrase that will help prove to the other person that they're being heard. I'm hearing you say, I learned that from the book of Oprah, chapter 3, verse 1. I'm hearing you say, I hate that kind of psycho babble often, but in this case, it's right. I'm hearing you say. When you then repeat what you heard them say with your own words, and then they say to you, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. At that moment, that person felt heard. You can guarantee it. Number two, guard your words vigilantly. The Bible says here, it's slow to speak. Proverbs 21, 23, watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut and you'll stay out of trouble. So here's a sign that you might be speaking too much. Very uh, basic now. Your listener's eyes have glazed over in a dull, vacant, focusless stare. And their pupils are fixed and dilated. It's just possible if that's happening to you, you could have a problem of speaking too much. A second sign is you find yourself physically restraining people to prevent their walking out while you're talking. I'm being a little facetious here. If you notice there's just this stream of conversation going on in one direction, and people are attempting to leave and you have to hold them there, it could be that you're talking too much. And the number three, if you're talking right now while I'm talking, this is a dead giveaway, you're talking too much. I'm trying to make a little light, but you know when you're talking too much. The problem is you don't know it at the time, do you? You know it afterwards. So the Bible says, guard your words and be slow to speak. So we have a timing thing here. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And then number three, manage my anger righteously. Slow to become angry. That's why Ephesians chapter four encourages us, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Some of you can remember a situation like this. It certainly happened to me, riding in the back seat of the car, going on vacation. My dad had worked a lot of overtime, put a lot of energy in to getting us ready to go on vacation. We were going to spend a week at grandma's house from our house in Chicago to the mountains where my grandmother lived. It was about a 14-hour drive. And so here my dad had worked really, really hard to get us ready, saved up money so we could go. We never ate out. We were going to eat out a few times. Uh, We never did anything all that special because my dad worked all the time. But on vacation, we were going to do a few special things. It was going to cost money. And at some point in my youth, I began to understand the sacrifice my dad was making. And at that point, I would love to tell you that because I understood the sacrifice he was making, it made the trip for him much more enjoyable. But that's not true at all. Even with my own kids, when Jill and I save up and try to take them places when they were little, they never one time when we were starting a journey or at any point in the journey, went. Thank you, parents. You're amazing. You're awesome. I see the sacrifice you're making to take us to Disney World today. I understand you took out a second mortgage on the house to make this happen. <laughs> they never said anything like that. That, that. that never happened. What happened instead is we wouldn't get any more than a couple of hours down the road, and me and my siblings, you would hear the phrase stop that. I'm telling, keep your hands to yourself. Don't hit me. You understand the deal? And by the book, often before we'd even hit, hit Indianapolis. My dad would reach back, straining his shoulder, and take swipes at us. I know that today that's child abuse, but back in the day, it was fully allowed. And my fa- parents are from Appalachia, so they get about a 20-year delay on everything developmentally. So it was still okay to hit kids back then. And I remember one time my dad pulling over the car, and he's like, I hey, I've had it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So he pulls us out, and he spanks us. He's like, I don't want to hear another word. So we get back in the car. And we're driving down the road, and it is just as quiet as can be. I don't know, a couple hours down the road. My sister says, can I say something? And my dad's like, yes. He was still hot. He's just still hot. She's like, when you spanked us, I left my shoes back there. They fell off. <laughs> that broke the ice, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a little funny story, but play that out when the stakes are high and It's real. That's why the Bible says be quick to listen and slow to speak and watch the anger. And by the way, if you're quick to listen and slow to speak, it's easier to watch the anger. In fact, it's somehow interesting that you'll fill the anger tank and you'll light those flames with your words quicker than anything else. So it's right words, right heart, right time. Because in times of conflict, if I fight for unity, if I fight for shared goals, and not just for a personal victory, I'm actually going to have the greater victory. There'll be less flags on the field. No penalties will be enacted. You're not going to have to push back on the line of scrimmage. You can keep moving those balls forward, all right? So why don't you grab out your Connect card, and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Right here on your Connect card that Pastor Will told you about earlier, next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. One of the things I love best about our Savior is his constant supply of grace because I need it. I remember when I was five years old, for the very first time, I knelt down, literally, and asked the Lord to be my Savior. I didn't know what it all meant. It's taken me a lifetime. I still don't know what it all means. All I know is on that day, he saved me. And he can do that for you today. The Bible says if you'll admit that you're a sinner... And trust the work that Jesus did for you on the cross and in his resurrection. You can have a relationship with him. We'd ask you to take your pen and next, check next step A right there. And put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by in a moment. Before that happens, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to do some business with God. and Say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. Wash away my sins. I want to follow you. Or next step B, I want to be baptized on October 13th or December 8th. These are our next two baptism dates. If you have questions or you want to be baptized, check the box. And uh, we'll communicate with you and get the ball rolling that way, answer your questions. Next step C, I'm wondering as a way of putting this word into action, if you wouldn't memorize with me, James 1.19. Over the last 15 years of a church, I've asked this congregation four different times to memorize this verse. This makes the fifth, all right? So here's what it says. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. The Bible says about this, that if you'll hide the word of God in your heart, it'll help you not to sin against him. And I bet you for some of us, I bet you for some of us, this can make a real difference in our life. And the next step D says, I am interested in attending Grow One, uh, which is about becoming a member. We'll teach you the basics of the gospel, the basic beliefs of this church, our basic history. At the end of it, if you want to become a member, you'll be given a chance. You don't have to, but you'll at least know what this church family is all about here. And we'll be glad to f- feed you a meal, take a couple hours of your time. It's a wonderful experience. You'll meet some of the staff. It's a great time. Just check the box. We'll send you the information. And then you can click through to complete the sign up. The next step, E says that it's our last week to sign up for small groups. They were in the sermon um, handout that you got on the fold. You just transfer the number of the group to uh, next step E. The spot there. Just put a little hashtag in the number and uh, you'll get the information about that group. And again, you can click through and sign up, all right? Why don't you set that aside for just a second. If you call this church home, i want to give you a chance to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. So uh, last week, we had a lot of guests here. And um, I got a really amazing email. I don't wanna give all the details away, but here's what the dad said. My family and I have had a real rough time. We had some interesting church stuff. He spelled those out. And yet, we came here this uh, last Sunday at Four Corners. I got this Monday morning in my inbox. We came here at church, uh, he said, yesterday in his email. And I just want to let you know that you and the team really ministered to our family, and we needed it. That's just one of several comments that were made. And when I got that email, I'm going to tell you what didn't happen. I didn't go, oh, yay, he heard my message and I spoke to him, although he referenced that, and that's always nice. I didn't think, yay, you know, we had a clean building, although we did, and that was nice. What I thought was, what an amazing church family we have, that people who are broken and experiencing some difficult stuff and are in transitions in their life can come here, and for a few minutes, we can put aside everything else, and we can focus on the work of Jesus. I want to tell you, when that happens, it touches people's hearts. That happened here last week, and it made me so grateful for you for the people who've sacrificed for years and years to make this place happen. You've given your time, you've given your heart, you've given your money, you made it happen. And I'm just grateful to be a part of it. Let's pray about our next section, our offering right now. Father, thank you so much for the work of Jesus. Lord, I have got to confess that I am dependent upon you. I'm So grateful that you didn't call me to total perfection, but you did call me to give my heart all the way over to you. So Father, the best way I know how, I ask you to take this heart that sometimes can be cold, stone-like. And I ask you, Father, to make it soft and pliable. I pray that for myself, for brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray for husbands whose hearts have been hardened by just the normal dings of life, sometimes extraordinary uh, storms that they've gone through and it's left them a little hard-hearted. I pray, Lord, specifically for the husbands and the men in this room, that you would give us soft and open hearts. I lift up teenagers, Father, and I ask you, Father, by your spirit, to soften their hearts to the things of God. It's amazing the enemy's onslaught on them in this culture, in this generation. I pray, Father, that they don't come into their 20s with hard hearts, but instead their hearts are open and soft before you. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to wrath. And now, Lord, would you take our offerings and our next steps and cause them to go far and wide for your glory. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. We lift up what you're doing and ask you to bless it all in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.